So for the next few podcasts, you're probably going to continue to hear that it is being sponsored by the Afterlife Awareness Conference, and we're really happy uh, to be able to share that. And we're also really excited to announce that we are going to be the production company that is going to be filming and recording the live stream of this event. So that's something new for us. Can't wait to get down there. Can't wait to be there in Florida in November when the sun is nice and warm, getting out of New York for a little bit. Can't wait for that. Um, But I'm really excited because I hope I get a chance to actually sit in on some of these workshops. Um, As some of you know, I had a chance to uh, speak with Monica Williams, who was an ER doctor, and she wrote the book, It's Okay to Die. I was so inspired by that podcast. If you haven't listened to it yet, head on back to the archives that I decided to do a summer book club on that, where I am going to be working with people on the different checklists on to prepare for their own death, the death of someone that they love. Uh, We're going to have people creating their bucket lists. And Dr. Monica Williams is going to be one of the presenters that is going to be teaching down there. So I'm really excited to meet her in person. And if you would like to have more information about the Afterlife Conference, head on over to afterlifeconference.com. The phone number, if you'd like to call 971-236-1541, check out their conference agenda. Take a look and see who is speaking, who will be teaching. And I'd really love if you would consider either spreading the word, letting people know about it, or maybe you will be one of the people that will grab the last 100 tickets left and you'll get a chance not only to meet and experience all of these wonderful workshops, but you'll get a chance to come on over and say hello to us. And that's always really fun to get a chance to meet our listeners. So again, guys, the website is afterlifeconference.com. Check it out. Orlando, Florida, November 1st through the 4th. Hi, and thanks for tuning in to the Path 11 podcast. I am your host, April Hanna. At the Path 11 Podcast, we are here trying to deliver leading-edge research on consciousness, healing, and metaphysics. And just like you, we are trying to answer the big questions about life. Who are we? Why are we here? And what is our purpose? We hope by listening to our podcast, it will make each day you live on Earth a little easier to understand. And now for today's podcast. Hey, everybody, we have a great show for you today. If you are someone like myself who has been trying to find ways to help our world and help the climate, then this is definitely going to be the podcast for you. I would like to welcome our guest, Mary DeMocker, who is the co-founder and creative director of 350.org's Eugene, Oregon chapter. And we are going to be talking about her book today called The Parent's Guide to Climate Revolution, 100 Ways to Build a Fossil-Free Future, Raise Empowered Kids, and Still get a good night's sleep. Welcome, Mary. Thank you. It's so nice to be here. Yes. uh, You know, I have to say that um, even if our listeners are not a parent, this is an amazing book with so many resources um, that I think anybody could benefit from it. Um, Teachers, you know, people like myself, maybe people who might, um, their kids are grown and gone and out of the house, but maybe they have some book clubs or, you know, people are just looking for ways to really help um, the climate. And this is such a tremendous resource book. So I'm so excited to talk about it. 
Well, thank you for that. And also the other the other people that I'm finding are interested in this are counselors and therapists and religious leaders, ministers and rabbis and pastors who are working with families and people who care about the future, people who care about children and and want to engage somehow but aren't quite sure what that way is for them. Yeah. So how did you actually begin all of this research and finding all of these great tips and ways um, to kind of help the environment here? How did this book come together? Yeah, it's been coming together over several years, mostly because I was living the question of how does a bit of someone who's busy working with young people as a parent, as a teacher, in whatever capacity, but specifically for me, because I had two children at home, um, how do I help raise them in, in a good way now so that they're connected to family, they're connected to the earth, they're they're working towards, you know, a good life of independence, but also help protect their habitat? And that is a question that literally kept me up at night when they were you know, younger, and we were trying so hard to, you know, recycle and bite and bike everywhere and, you know, bring our cloth bags and turn down our heat and live simply. And all the things that I understood for, for a couple of decades were really the way to help the planet heal. And then somewhere around 2007, I really understood that things were not getting better with all those efforts. And so I started to speak out you know, to change the system and not just change our light bulbs. And when I began to do that, other parents started to ask me, they saw that I was working with 350. They saw that I was writing and speaking and doing protests and doing interactive art. I was just on fire in so many ways. And and they began to ask me, well, give me a list of just five or 10 easy things that I can do to make a difference. And that is the list that became my book. Now, can you explain for our listeners, what does it mean to shrink a family's carbon footprint? What is What are these carbon footprints that we make on the world? Well, yes. Yeah, so everybody has a carbon footprint. And what that means is it's the amount of carbon or, or methane that's sort of included in that greenhouse gases. And there are several kinds, but we kind of talk about carbon because that's the biggest one. And it stays out in the atmosphere for for 100 years. Once it's released, once that gas is released, it's out there for a century-ish. <laughs> so how much are we each releasing in a given year, for example? And the things that kind of make it add up are... Um, the food we're eating that takes a lot of carbon to produce beef, for example, the the miles that we're driving, just getting to and from work, um, how big our house is, how much we're heating it, how much we're cooling it, um, what is it, what kind of water heater do we have? You know, there. But the biggest thing for many people is how many flights are we taking and how far and what kinds of flights. So all of those things add up to be the amount that you or your family collectively. Mm-hmm are putting into the atmosphere that will stay there long after you have passed on. And so that's what we refer to as the carbon footprint, is is that amount that you're putting out. And then how do we make it smaller? And there are lots and lots of books about that. And so I don't I don't go into it as deeply as, as um, other books do because there are so many resources. And that's exactly what I was mentioning earlier is there's so much focus on that, shrinking our carbon footprint. And it's important to do, but it's become 
actually, in my opinion, a distraction because all of the focus on individual efforts is taking many people's attention away from the more important question right now in this emergency, which is what is the carbon footprint of industry in our country? What is the carbon footprint of, of North America on the whole? And that's the thing that we need to look at as being massive compared to other countries, massive compared to the amount that we can actually afford to be putting into the atmosphere. So what I tell people in this book is we cannot save children's futures. We cannot save the planet. We can't save even our own. You know, if, if we're in our 30s or 40s, we still have many decades. Um, you know, I'm in my 50s now. And I still hope to be here for four, for four or five more decades, but those decades are going to be compromised by the kinds of changes we're seeing now with the greenhouse gases like carbon that are, that are breaking the climate down. They're breaking down the atmosphere's ability to do its job. And that's where we have to look really on a global level. What is it going to take to heal the climate, what's it going to take to reverse the damage that we've done and balance the climate system? And that's where we have to look on a systemic scale and not just at changing our light bulbs. Again, it's important. It's good to do those things. Living lightly on the earth is it's good for us. It's, kind of, it's good for our spirits. What's good for the earth is good for us. However, at this critical moment in the climate crisis, and we are at a critical moment because we have just a small window that we have to dive through, you know, and it's closing to get things turned around enough before we come to, you know, what are called these tipping points where, it's we're un, we've unleashed so much you know carbon and methane and we've broken the climate down so much that it can't really recover and things are starting to spin out of control and those are the scenarios that frighten people and that are confusing to people and so what I'm trying to focus people's attention on is we just need to work locally in ways that are going to help us stop putting so much pollution into the atmosphere and start healing the climate system. Now, how do we get kind of your average human being to really recognize um, the global impact of what's going on? Because if you just take, say, your average person, take myself, for example, um, you know, where I may not have a ton of time to do all of the research to really get educated on what is going on with the climate. And, you know, I wake up every day and I drive to work and, you know, work at the office and then come back. You know, my world just kind of seems like it's my world and I'm not really able to grasp on that large level of really what what is going on and how is it being impacted. I think most people might be able to see the changes in the weather, right? Amongst the, mm -hmm. the larger population, people will probably say, well, maybe there is something to global warming here. But unless you're really kind of exposed to the education or maybe watching videos about what's going on with the ocean and plastic, um, I think it might be hard for people to really grasp that there's a serious change going on. So how, how do we do that? How do we see it to be impacted and then really want to make the change at home? Well, yeah, I, I think it is an interesting time we're living in because I think that's a great point you're bringing up because I, I see it in my own world. I, I, I relate exactly to what you're saying because I if I were to not read anything, I would probably say, being someone in my 50s, it doesn't snow as much in New York where I was raised when I visit my parents or hear about it. There's not as much snow. Or I would say, wow, out here in Oregon, it is 
really more and more smoky in August. Those are the kind of the main two things that I would notice. And a bunch of our trees, we have a, a property um, that's, you know, out in the country that has lost 50 trees in the last probably more than 50 trees from the die-offs that are from bark beetles. And then there was a new round now out here in Oregon, the fir trees, which is our signature tree. They are dying by the thousands because of the dry climate that's drier than it's ever been. Well, in the last <laughs> couple of centuries. So those are the things that I can see with my own eyes without the news. However, we're all really dialed in for the most part to what's going on in our country, enough to know that Houston, for example, was submerged. They had more rainfall in 24 hours than, than ever in the history of the US. You know, it's, it was, that's the fourth largest country, uh, fourth largest city in our country, and it was submerged. LA was on fire through the holidays. Oregon, the whole West was on fire last, you know, August and September. Boston, pummeled with with floods and that then froze in people's basements. Puerto Rico, decimated, still not really 100% back to having all of their systems working even months later. And it's been a huge impact on on that population. So I think there are things that we can experience just in the news cycle without even going back to Sandy and, you know, Hurricane Sandy and Hurricane Katrina, and without even looking beyond our borders, uh, things that are happening in Africa and in Asia that are decimating, you know, the populations there and their, their food systems. So I think, I think it's time for us to really recognize that even if we can't see it in our own lives, we are in this country contributing to it through our lifestyles, but also, and this is the more important part, I think, that we really need to talk about more, we're impacting it through our our government's policies. So Trump's withdrawal from the Paris Climate Agreement was a devastating act on the global stage because we have been producing, you know, up, up there with, with China um, in terms of, you know, it's been changing over the past few years. We were the number one producer of uh, greenhouse gases for, for a very long time. China's, you know, outstripped us, but we, for our percentage of our population, for how much, how many people we have, we have a much bigger carbon footprint per capita than anywhere else in the world. And that's something that we really need to digest a little bit here is that the people in the northern countries and the in the developed countries with the big economies they are essentially filling the atmosphere with poison and the people who are impacted the first and the worst are people in the countries that had the least amount uh, the least to do with that they're the first impacted and the worst impacted and they have almost, it's a negligible amount of responsibility in terms of their carbon footprints. So you have Africa baking now, and, and they're predicting nine out of 10 farmers will not be able to make a crop in, in the next couple of decades. Nine out of 10 farmers not able to do subsistence crops in their own countries because our country in particular, North America, has, has filled 
the atmosphere with so much poison that we're breaking it down and, and the earth is heating up. But it's not heating up in North America as much as it's heating up in places like Africa. It's not the, the sea level rise isn't impacting us in this country as much as it's impacting places like you know, the, the Maldives or the Marshall Islands. There are lots of island nations now that are literally drowning. Their, their graveyards, their ancestors' bones are washing away. You can watch it happen if you live in those places. So I think we need to really check in with our own privilege and our own lifestyle in terms of seeing what our actions are doing to the rest of the planet, but but more, as much or more, what is it doing to the future? What is it doing to present and future generations of children? And for me as a parent, that's a very direct link. I'm taking certain actions or doing certain things, and it's directly harming my own children. So I think that's why I wrote the book, April, is because I felt that keen and painful intersection between what I was doing and saying and talking about and the way I was living and what I wanted for my own children. Because I spend every day, I get up every morning and I'm thinking about my children all day and I'm working towards their their thriving in the world and their long-term well-being, whether it's communicating with a teacher or or nagging them about their teeth or setting up, you know, the, 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 the Frisbee carpool or going shopping and thinking about, you know, what diet will be better for my child who doesn't do as well with dairy. All of these things are the work of a parent and it's constant. And yet at the same time, there's been this backdrop of this threat to my children's very well, not just their well-being, but their very survival. Okay. And do you ever have like people, um, you know, maybe play devil's advocate or say, well, Mary, you know, we've always had forest fires. We've always had flooding. There's always going to be hurricanes. Um, you know, and, you know, do people maybe challenge you to say, um, is this climate change just a part of the cycle of the planet? You know, Every once in a while now, I, I encounter that. And for the most part, um, I don't because it, scientists have been so robust in their conclusion that the climate is changing. The planet is heating. It's human caused. It's bad. But it's also fixable. That's the part that there's some confusion around is exactly how we can do that. And I talk about that a lot in my book. So I don't, um, I don't really get into arguments with people anymore because um, what we have discovered, <laughs> what has been painfully revealed in books like uh, Merchants of Doubt, um, which also is a movie, is that a lot of that confusion about what's going on, most of it is driven by industry industry's misinformation campaign. And that is um, all well-documented. And, and the reason that so many cities and, and even you know New York State now are suing uh, the, the big oil companies because they have a directly influenced public policy and public perception of, of our crisis by, by manipulating the science, by lying, um, about the science for decades and by funding um, these these misinformation camps that uh, campaigns that have done a devastating job of confusing people about the causes 
of global warming and the impacts on our future, but also the solutions to global warming. And so I think that's something people really need to understand is the confusion at this point is primarily generated by the industry, the oil industry, and that is all traceable. There, there's a lot of, out there in congressional documents about it. And um, and in my book, there are websites that you can also look to that have a lot of the documented research. So I, that's not even much of a thing that people are debating anymore. The question is, what do you do with the fact that we now have that kind of confusion out there and that, that it's filters, you know, information moves slowly, right? So if you've got scientists that have for several years been saying, no, you know, it's 97% of us are in consensus. The consensus is in, the debate is over. But what do you do about the fact that policy hasn't caught up to that and, and climate literacy education in schools hasn't caught up to that? And so again, that's another, there's a chapter in my book about how we help with that with our children. Um, there's a chapter just about climate literacy in schools and how to help bring that education. But there's also a chapter called Inoculate Everyone that I was fascinated by in my research because what um, a couple of researchers at two different universities have found is that that basically climate denial problem is something that can actually, people can actually be inoculated against. And um, the way to do that is a two-step process where you first tell people that some politically motivated groups um, have been using misleading tactics to try to convince the public that there's a lot of disagreement among scientists about human-caused global warming. And the idea is that those, you know, industry hopes to dupe the public about the need for urgent climate action because they don't want carbon regulated. If carbon is regulated, then it really spells the end of the fossil fuel industry, coal, oil, and gas industries, which has to happen anyway. But the campaign to keep it in the ground and to move to clean and renewable energies is an existential threat to ExxonMobil and BP and Shell and all the big majors that have so much money. So they hope to dupe the public and and that's why <laughs> the public then wouldn't demand a, a Congress that is taking action. That's where we find ourselves now, a Congress and a president that are, that are in, in denial of the problem. So once you tell people um, about the Oregon petition, this is, this is a very interesting story where the Oregon petition was, um, was a document that was circulated by a, a kind of a, a conservative um, super conservative uh, man here in, in Oregon who's tried to run for Congress several times and failed. And so he circulated a petition to scientists, even my husband, who's a, who um, has a master's in physics but is not a climate scientist. He, he got this petition and they tried to get as many people as they could who have science degrees of any kind to sign this petition saying that global warming was not human cause of science. It's out. It's still undecided. And so my husband, when he got this, and this is a story in the book, he, he got this, you know, this letter asking, would you sign this petition? Um, this is several years ago, and he, he just tossed it saying, oh, they're going to get some people who are easily duped. And sure enough, they got, you know, supposedly 31,000 signatures that the media seized on as evidence that, you see, the scientists aren't in agreement. Well, it turns out that when you d dig into those numbers, only one-eighth of one percent of the scientists who claim to have signed this even were climatologists. So that's where we have to really look at what are the ways that the industry has found to confuse the public and how is the media complicit in that? So there's the second thing that people, so people hear about the Oregon petition and how it was 
trumping in as evidence. And it's a, it's a fraudulent document. So when people hear that story, they're kind of interested. Like, that's the whole reason that people say that the science isn't settled because of this fraudulent document that, that the Spice Girls signed twice. Characters from MASH are on. Darwin signed it, supposedly. So the signatures are not even validated. So when people hear that story, and then they are, are told the second part, there's a second part of the inoculation is, to offer people the fact that virtually all climate scientists, more than 97%, agree that humans are dangerously heating the planet. So according to a University of Cambridge study, just those two steps, if you tell people those two things, tell them that people are, are um, that politically motivated groups, like the ones who, who uh, created the Oregon petition, are using misleading tactics, and then you tell them that the science is in, and that humans are dangerously heating the planet, then in the future they're less likely to be swayed by or confused by misinformation campaigns. Yeah, and I think that's why we need people like you to do that research for us and let us know. <laughs> because, you know, unless people are really digging deep and going beneath the surface of what they're reading, a lot of people will just take what they read for face value to be truth. Yeah, and that's where... That's where it's really important to get good information. That's one of the things I want to, to um, suggest is that um, groups like Yale Climate Communications are wonderful resources. They're free. You can get it online. And it is a great clearinghouse for up-to-the-minute climate uh, research. But what's great about it is that it also talks about the solutions and about you know, for example, there is a 27-year-old South African engineer who, you know, she, she figured out how to harvest wind from London subway tunnels. Those are the kind of innovations that get people excited. So when you talked to April earlier about, you know, you drive to car, you drive to work, you do your, you know, your best every day and you come home and how do you engage with it, hear about it, you're not impacted by it. Get yourself onto one of these lists and find out about the wonderful innovations that are that are being, you know, pursued out there. The solutions to our crisis lie in clean and renewable energy, and in all the wonderful innovations for battery storage, and for for new ways of looking at the world. For example, wind is cheaper than any kind of coal or oil or gas at this point. It's two point nine cents a, a kilowatt, at least when I did the research several months ago. That's cheaper than, than fracked gas. That's something that not many people know. So we need to start talking about these things, and we need to have the information at our fingertips. And one of the ways to do that is get one of those, you know, those newsletters. The, the Grist has a, a, a little thing called the Beacon that comes out every day or every other day, and I like it because it's short and it's funny, and it gives you some good news and then something they call it the beacon and the smog, and and it's it's light, it's short. I can I can digest that amount of information. Yale Climate Connection, fabulous. It's got a lot more information. It doesn't come out quite as often, but it is completely thorough and it is varied. You get all all from all parts of the spectrum: the science, the innovations, the the new laws that are coming on, the places that have banned fracking, the places that are divesting. You get it all. Clean Technica is another one. So one thing people can do who care and aren't sure where to start, get good information. Get one of those three. My book has a whole chapter on getting good information. There are lots of websites out there that you can join for free. 
Well, and that's the other great thing about your book too. I mean, in every tip out of the 100 tips, um, you break it down so nicely. I like it when you do it um, time-wise. You're like, if you have five minutes, here's what you could do. 30 <laughs> yeah. to 60 minutes, seven weeks to four hours weekly. But then you're giving websites. I mean, when I just look through a couple of the chapters, I'm like, okay, so I've never heard of petitionproject.org or opensecrets.org. I mean, you have articles, great websites uh, related to the tips of what people can do, where they can go. Um, so just your book alone, if people wanted to, um, you know, just get those resources, I think that would be tremendous. Um, and a great idea. Um, <laughs> that's, a, that's a smarter idea. If I'm telling people to do one thing, I should say, buy my book. Because yeah. it's, it does have a lot of different ways in and there are 100 chapters, but each chapter has three to 20 you know, websites or tips. So I think it's, I'm glad that you're bringing that part up because it, it reminds, it lets people know that there's an easy way into this overwhelming, potentially overwhelming crisis. This, it, this book really does have hundreds of ways in. And if you don't like one, you turn the page and find another. Right. And, you know, when I was going through the book, too, I was like, wow, this woman has done tremendous research. I mean, the resources alone in the book, uh, it's kind of shocking. It's like, wow. So, I mean, I could tell that you've really put your blood, sweat and tears into this. And it has really, you. you know, become like, you know, it's it's a part of you, which is which is nice to see that passion. Um, and yeah, and I think it's, you know, it really does come down to when people are listening to a podcast like this. Well, you know, what what can I do? Um, I know that there is a, a girl here locally. Um, she's a friend of mine, and she created a campaign called Earth's Last Straw. And uh, mm. I happened to follow her on Instagram. And again, it's just getting simple knowledge about do we really need to uh, use plastic straws when we drink out of things? And, you know, seeing videos um, or clips like on Facebook of like plastic straws being taken out of sea turtles' noses and mm. plastic bags like wrapped around these animals. For me, you know, seeing something like that once or twice makes me personally just question if I'm out at a restaurant, do I need that straw? Um, you know, can I just drink out of the glass? You know, since when do we need to use plastic straws all the time? Um, so, you know, those are some of the things that I've tried to commit to to myself as well as, you know, the shopping bags where you, you know, you purchase the ones that you can bring back. It could be a pain in the butt if you forget. But at the same time to just think about, well, OK, I'm doing these maybe two little things and I feel like I'm contributing to helping, you know, the world overall. Yeah, and, and those things are important, but I do want to, you know, emphasize again that um, it's it's easy, I think, sometimes to feel like, well, I'm doing, I'm, get, I'm not taking plastic straws. In fact, I bought a glass straw. There's a, a great, uh, you know, there are great glass and, and, and uh, steel straws out there if you want them, um, taking my bags. But I think it's... It, I think it's really most important right now to see our predicament clearly as an issue around our policies. For example, we can focus on trying to not get straws or carry a, you know, carry a bag, but it's more important to probably ban plastic straws. It's probably more important to ban dumping plastic into the oceans, you know, right. rather than focusing too much on our individual efforts, because if we have, let's say, five minutes to do something, you know, one of the things I talk about is the peanut butter jar. It takes two to three minutes sometimes to, you know, those peanut butter jars, almond butter, you know, they're very oily and sticky and it's hard to get them clean. 
you're using sometimes a gallon of water to get it cleaned. What do we do with the, 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 the peanut butter jar? Or what do we do if we only have three minutes in a day? We're super busy, but we want to do something. We have three minutes. I actually say throw the peanut butter jar into the garbage. If it stops you, if doing that for three minutes, cleaning that out and getting it ready for recycling stops you from contacting your local representative to stop the fossil fuel expansion. What's most important right now, particularly under Trump, particularly at this time right now, this month, this summer, they want to, the Trump administration wants to expand the fossil fuel infrastructure at a time when we need to be ending it. And that's something that cannot be emphasized enough. They want to extract $50 trillion of coal, oil, and gas from this country. That's a staggering amount of pollution to be unleashed. That means they want to, every, every state that has a beach, they want offshore drilling. They want more coal strip mining. They want more pipelines. They want more tar sands imported, you know, through our country, going from Canada, the heart of Canada, where they're digging up this extreme, you know, cr crude stuff and, and pushing it through pipelines across our entire nation. The heart of our nation is riddled with pipelines that are headed down to the Gulf Coast to be exported, to be refined. That is a staggering thing to do, to move oil, crude oil, from, from the middle of Canada down over our aquifers, where all of our, most of our, the breadbasket of our country is, over that and down to refineries in the, in the Gulf Coast area. Uh, that's an amazing crime to do against the earth and against, I would say, our own children. So one of the things we need to understand is that there's a, a quiet and, and devastating, it's almost like there's a war going on, really. If you consider what is being done on a planetary level, and the things that are being done on a day-to-day -day basis to, to get there. So, for example, the, the expansion in fracking is, fracking itself is an unprecedented, it's highly unusual practice of cracking open the earth using our clean drinking water, infusing it with chemicals, and then getting this, you know, this, methane out of the ground, deep out down in the ground. But all that water that is now poisoned is being taken out of the life cycle of the Earth's, you know, water system and and actually injected deep into the earth. And that's something most people do not know. And I didn't really understand until I got deep into my research how many millions of gallons of clean water are being taken out of the life cycle of the earth when people do a single fracking operation is millions of clean gallons of clean water and then when that's injected into the planet it can cause earthquakes and has caused earthquakes so fracking alone is something that we should be shutting down the trump administration wants to you know <laughs> big it up that alone then there's the all the oil trains those are going through almost everywhere almost every state has has an oil train going through its its downtowns, volatile um, crude oil going through downtown, sneaking through, and they're not um, required to tell local um, first responders that there's volatile oil going through downtown, even though it's the same or worse than the stuff that killed 47 people up in Toronto a few years back. So these are the things that people don't understand are going on, and they are, it's, it's kind of like they're the foot soldiers in the war against the planet. 
those projects. And so what we need to do, so the good news is that all of those projects require long transportation routes. The people that, you know, the companies that are trying to get coal out, you know, from, from West Virginia or out to, out to China, that's a long way. The people that want to get the tar sands, you know, pipeline oil down through the U.S., that's a long way. The same with on the oil trains. All of those can be shut down by local resistance to the permits that are required to get those projects through. And I think that's something that is um, a very uh, heartening piece of all this is that we can show the world that we've done this in the Northwest. So I live in Oregon and there have been since 2012 dozens of projects proposed for the Pacific Northwest because they're trying to get um, exports out through you know, the Columbia River and through the the, the Northwest out to Asia, to China. They're trying to get gas out to those markets and we are fiercely fighting and have defeated the fracked gas um, export pipeline through Oregon. That's been a battle now for you know a decade. There has not been a single new terminal or new pipeline built in the, in, in the last six years since there's been this influx of new energy proposals. And the reason for that is because we have done a fierce resistance every step of the way. We've done a ton of public education. And, I, and in my book, I talk about that, how the way that I did some of that resistance was through the arts. We, when we found out about this fracked gas pipeline, that was proposed through Oregon, through Coos Bay, that every other state and all of Canada had rejected because they didn't want the risks associated with it. But Oregon was saying yes. When I found out about this, nobody else seemed to know about this. I found out about it through 350 Eugene, that there was this dangerous pipeline that was trying to get through the West Coast and get fracked gas exports to, to China. We decided in our neighborhood to do a dramatization of the process that was going on. The process has been that companies will come in and tell landowners, we're seizing your land, we're condemning your land with eminent domain, which has traditionally been used by you know, the, the government to do a highway or to do um, a, you know, a new school or something that is considered in the public good. Well, now it's being used in Oregon in many places you know, along the Keystone Pipeline route to seize, public, seize private property by a private corporation. And so we were kind of appalled when we learned about this. What, you can steal, take people's land and put a pipeline through it against their will? And so we decided to dramatize that because I was already doing, you know, interactive art on my own front lawn to raise awareness about different ecological issues or social justice issues or to just have fun with, you know, Halloween. And so we were doing a lot of art on our front lawn that I talk about in the book. And so what we decided was, well, let's ask our neighbors, can we condemn your property and put a pipeline through it? And so we had six people in a row on our on our block, and they all said, sure. So we built a 300-foot life-size pipeline, like a like a, a faux pipeline that, that was uh, to, you know, dramatize what was happening in Oregon or trying to happen in Oregon. And then we condemned all their homes, and then we put information all along the block about what the pipeline was that was being proposed for Oregon, what it would do to our waterways, 400 waterways, what it would do to endangered species, what it would do to the salmon run, what it would do to our economics, what would it do for workers, what would it do along the coastline, you know, this area where they're trying to build this huge terminal. And so we did it in conjunction with an international law, environmental law conference that I'm, you know, down the street from me. And we had a six-day, um, six-day, installation of this. And at the end of the pipeline, you could 
um, you know, the, the question is, well, what, how can we stop it? And the, the way that we could stop it is by talking to the governor because she has power over how this pipeline, whether it is, is allowed to be permitted and all these different agencies were giving it permits or not. So we wanted her to put it through a rigorous process and consider the climate, consider the impact on endangered species. And we were going to hold her to that. So for the six days, we had selfie stations. We had hundreds of postcards that um, my family and their cousins had made these handmade postcards that could go to the governor. They were stamped. They were addressed. People came through, and and then the media came through. And what, what I found that was fascinating, and, and the reason I'm telling this story, is that what happened was astounding. First of all, it united our block. We had 50 people that were involved, and then some people from 350, Eugene. And it got overnight media attention on an issue that had not been talked about once in the local mainstream media. So all of a sudden, it was all through the county. Hundreds of thousands of people heard about it because it was front page you know, news. For six days, it was on the radio throughout Oregon, and the kids were excited. They were on the news. They saw themselves. They heard themselves on the radio, and and that really struck me that pe- there were people involved from toddlers that were you know bouncing on the trampoline while their while their moms you know did made postcards, or older kids that made postcards themselves. Kids that were part of putting up the pipeline. Teenagers that were hanging signs on their house college kids that were over here doing the hashtags. It was an epic and wonderfully unifying effort. And it worked. It was different. It was out of the box. It was creative. It got attention. It was a little desperate. But then what was really cool, too, was that it sparked interest in other communities who then contacted 350 Eugene. And overnight, we had a statewide resistance coalition grow up. And that resistance coalition has grown and grown and it succeeded in defeating that pipeline. Now, unfortunately, with Trump back in, not with Trump in, the pipeline is again on the table. It was defeated under Obama in 2016 in the spring. Now it's back on and we're fighting it again. But the point I want to make here is that that pipeline, the piece that I took on, The part that was interesting to me was not so much the scientist. I'm not a scientist. I'm not a lobbyist. I'm not so interested in all that. But I wanted to dramatize the process in a way that I thought was, was, it would kind of capture people's imaginations because I was captured that way. I was, I was astounded that you could, that that a private company could run a pipeline across my land if they wanted to against my will and against all my neighbors' will. And that's what really struck people. It, even for conservatives, that is really, <laughs> they don't like that. So that's what I want to sort of offer people is, and, and the book does have a lot of ideas about creative ways of engaging in a conversation. You don't have to just go out there and you know give slideshows or talks about, about carbon dioxide and the science. You can engage in ways that work for you. And the, and the book is full of those ideas. So I, I think... One of the things we need to realize is there are ways of getting involved, but the the end goal right now, it's really important that we're focused on on shutting down coal, oil, and gas new projects and bringing on clean and renewable energy and getting that information out to people, talking it up, giving that information to young people about how wind is so much cheaper and how fun it can be to have solar farms. China is building solar farms in the shape of large animals, sometimes there's a giant panda on one. There's a giant one. One of their stadiums is as a huge dragon that's coiled around itself. If you look at it from the air, and the scales of the dragon are each solar panels. So that's a beautiful, playful approach to to saving the planet. It's high tech. 
It's more affordable, but it's life affirming. And I think people need to know about some of those things because it makes it fun to be part of the solution rather than overwhelming to look at the problems. Yeah. And maybe for our last question, I would just like to get your take on this. How do you think we are actually going to get off of this addiction to oil, being that oil is like a big part of our everyday products? Well, I think we just have to know that there are other solutions out there that are actually much better for us. There are lots of co-benefits of getting off of coal, oil, and gas. You've, you don't you don't have wind and wind and solar power are endless and abundant, and they're free. So that's one thing people really, I think, are encouraged by is you don't have to wage a war over wind. Nobody wages war over that. A lot of our military has been focused on protecting oil oil supply. So just that alone is a huge benefit of going fossil free. Another thing about going fossil free is that our air is cleaner. So trying to help the climate helps our own health. If you're having a, fl- a fracking operation, you're going to have your drinking water poisoned, <laughs> essentially, or certainly threatened. And there are places where people have had their, you know, so much... Uh, chemical and gas stuff in, in, stirred up in their in the water table around them that they can actually light their 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 water on fire in their in their kitchen sink. That's in the in the movie Gasland. You can see that happening. It's healthier for us to be on clean and renewable energy. It's also more affordable for us. You know, there's billions of dollars that we taxpayers are paying in subsidies for fossil fuels. And that's one, again, another thing that not many people know. Imagine if those subsidies, the billions of dollars that we've put into coal, oil, and gas to propping those things up, imagine if that were turned into beautiful wind farms, offshore wind farm, onshore wind farms, solar panels everywhere. And one thing people might like to know is something that uh, the book Drawdown has. That's a great resource for for how we can reverse, you know, the climate crisis on a sort of a technical, scientific level. One of the things that they say is the wind potential of um, three states alone, Kansas, North Dakota, and Texas, just those three states alone, their potential is enough to run this country. That that's without solar. And then when you start adding it up, you know, they have what they call grid flexibility, which is, you know, LA is building towards this with, you know, 18,000, I think it's 18,000 batteries they want to install by, by 2021, where they have sun during the day and then wind power at night. And that's where there are new technologies for, for anticipating when the peak is on the grid and then kind of bringing out, you know, I say it's like, a, it's like a conductor of an orchestra. Okay, the, the sun's going down now. Up comes the wind. You know, that's what you have your grid flexibility for so that you can bring on different energy sources or in-stream hydro or wave energy and you bring it to to your communities when one of them isn't able to go, the other one comes on. There are some places that can that have wind all the time. There are some places that have incredible uh, potential for wave energy. All of these innovations are exciting. They're happening worldwide. And in, and in North America, we're going backwards. And that's one thing that's helpful to know is that other countries are charging ahead. China in particular is going fast and so is, is Europe. There are wonderful new innovations that it's fun to hear about. It's exciting. It's life-affirming. It's cleaner for our air, soil, and water, and it's healthier for our bodies. Children in China are inhaling coal 
filth air all day long in Beijing. People are dying from that. And that's a, that's a not insignificant <laughs> benefit from getting off of coal is that our children won't be breathing filthy air. We have wind farm capacity. It doesn't take up much space. It's not as expensive. It's it doesn't smell bad. It doesn't make a lot of noise. And and some of the resistance to wind farms have been, you know, solved. They're, they're moving them out of bird migration paths. They're moving them away from rec- recreation areas. And those are the two main problems that people were kind of resistant to. So, so knowing that wind is cheaper, knowing that it can get us off of fossil fuel, I think is a huge um, piece for people that's inspiring and exciting and gives us kind of a path forward. Well, Mary, thank you so much. This was a great conversation to have. Um, I think our listeners probably learned a lot, and there's more to learn if they purchase your book, The Parent's Guide to Climate Revolution. And you guys can also check out what she's doing and take a look at these beautiful pictures with her art in action on her website, marydemacher.com. Thanks so much, Mary, for being a guest on the Path Eleven podcast. Well, it's a pleasure to be here. Thank you, April. If you want more information about our films, visit our website, path11productions.com, to purchase DVDs or to rent and stream each film. You can also find our trilogy of films on iTunes, Amazon Prime, and Gaia.com. You can still use our smartphone app for both Android and iPhones. Just search for Path 11 in the Google Play App Store, or if on an iPhone, look for Path 11 in the iOS App Store. Catch you next time.